Chapter Seventeen of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Seventeen. Tete a Tete. When Harcourt was aroused from his sound sleep by Upton and requested in the very blandest tones of that eminent diplomatist to lend him every attention of his very remarkable faculties, he was not by any means certain that he was not engaged in a strange dream, nor was the suspicion at all dispelled by the revelations addressed to him. "'Just dip the end of that towel in the water, Upton, and give it to me,' cried he at last, and then, wiping his face and forehead, said, "'Have I heard you aright? There was no marriage?' Upton nodded assent. "'What a shameful way he's treated this poor boy, then!' cried the other. "'I have never heard of anything equal to it in cruelty, and I conclude it was breaking this news to the lad that drove him out to sea on that night, and brought on this brain fever. By Jove, I'd not take his title and your brains to have such a sin on my conscience!' "'We are happily not called on to judge the act,' said Upton cautiously. "'And why not? Is it not every honest man's duty to reprobate whatever he detects dishonourable or disgraceful? I do judge him, and sentence him too, and I say, moreover, that a more cold-blooded piece of cruelty I never heard of. He trains up this poor boy from childhood to fancy himself the heir to his station and fortune. He nurses in him all the pride that only a high rank can cover. And then, when the lad's years have brought him to the period when these things assume all their value, he sends for him to tell him he's a bastard. It is not impossible that I think worse of Glencore's conduct than you do yourself," said Upton gravely. But you never told him so, I'll be sworn. You never said to him it was a rascally action. I'll lay a hundred pounds on it. You only expostulated on the inexpediency or the inconvenience or some such trumpery consideration and did not tell him in round numbers that what he had done was an infamy. Then I fancy you'd lose your money, pretty much as you're losing your temper, that is, without getting anything in requital. What did you say to him, then? said Harcourt, slightly abashed. A great deal in the same strain as you have just spoken in, doubtless not as warm in vituperation, but possibly as likely to produce an effect. Nor is it in the least necessary to dwell upon that. What Glencore has done, and what I have said about it, both belong to the past. They are over. They are irrevocable. It is to what concerns the present and the future I wish now to address myself, and to interest you. Why, the boy's name was in the peerage. I read it there myself. My dear Harcourt, you must have paid very little attention to me a while ago, or you would have understood how that occurred. And here were all the people, the tenantry on the estate, calling him the young lord, and the poor fellow growing up with the proud consciousness that the title was his due. There is not a hardship of the case I have not pictured to my own mind as forcibly as you can describe it, said Upton. But I really do not perceive that any reprobation of the past has in the slightest assisted me in providing for the future. And then, murmured Harcourt, for all the while he was pursuing his own train of thought, quite irrespective of all Upton was saying, and then he turns him adrift on the world without friend or fortune. It is precisely 
that he may have both the one and the other that I have come to confer with you now, replied Upton. Glencore has made a liberal provision for the boy, and has asked me to become his guardian. I have no fancy for the trust, but I didn't see how I could decline it. In this letter he assigns to him an income, which shall be legally secured to him. He commits to me the task of directing his education, and suggesting some future career, and for both these objects I want your counsel. "'Education! Prospects! Why, what are you talking about? A poor fellow who has not a name, nor a home, nor no one to acknowledge him. What need has he of education, or what chance of prospects? I'd send him to sea, and if he wasn't drowned before he came to manhood, I'd give him his fortune, whatever it was, and say, "'Go settle in some of the colonies. You have no right to train him up to meet fresh mortifications and insults in life, to be flouted by every fellow that has a father, and outraged by every cur whose mother was married.' "'And are the colonies especially inhabited by illegitimate offspring?' said Upton dryly. "'At least he'd not be met with a rebuff at every step he made. The rude life of toil would be better than the polish of a civilization that could only reflect upon him.' "'Not badly said, Harcourt,' said Upton, smiling. "'But as to the boy, I have other prospects. He has, if I mistake not, very good faculties. You estimate them even higher.' I don't see why they should be neglected. If he merely possessed the mediocrity of gifts which make men tolerable lawyers and safe doctors, why, perhaps he may turn them into some channel. If he really can lay claim to higher qualities, they must not be thrown away. Which means he ought to be bred up to diplomacy, said Harcourt. Perhaps, said the other, with a bland inclination of the head. And what can an old dragoon like myself contribute to such an object? asked Harcourt. "'You can be of infinite service in many ways,' said Upton, "'and for the present I wish to leave the boy in your care, till I can learn something about my own destiny. This, of course, I shall know in a few days. Meanwhile, you'll look after him, and as soon as his removal becomes safe, you'll take him away from this. It does not much matter whither. Probably some healthy, secluded spot in Wales, for a week or two, would be advisable.' Glencore and he must not meet again. If ever they are to do so, it must be after a considerable lapse of time. "'Have you thought of a name for him? Or is his still to be Massey?' asked Harcourt bluntly. "'He may take the maternal name of Glencore's family, and be called Doyle, and the settlements could be drawn up in that name. I'll be shot if I like to have any share in the whole transaction. Some day or other it will all come out, and who knows how much blame may be imputed to us.' perhaps for actually advising the entire scheme, said Harcourt. You must see, my dear Harcourt, that you are only refusing aid to alleviate an evil, and not to devise one. If this boy—well, well, I give in. I'd rather comply at once than be preached into acquiescence. Even when you do not convince me, I feel ashamed to oppose myself to so much cleverness. So, I repeat, I'm at your orders. Admirably spoken, said Upton with a smile. "'My greatest difficulty of all,' said Harcourt, "'will be to meet Glencore again after this. "'I know, I feel I can never forgive him.' "'Perhaps he will not ask forgiveness, Harcourt,' said the other with one of his slyest looks. "'Glencore is a strange, self-opinionated fellow, "'and has amongst other odd notions that of going the road he likes best himself. "'Besides, there is another consideration here, "'and with no man will it weigh more than with yourself.' 
Glencore has been dangerously ill. At this moment we can scarcely say that he has recovered. Yet his state is one of anxiety and doubt. You are the last who would forget such infirmity. Nor is it necessary to secure your pity that I should say how seriously the poor fellow is now suffering. I trust he'll not speak to me about this business, said Harcourt after a pause. Very probably he will not. He will know that I have already told you everything, and that there will be no need of any communication from him. I wish from my heart and soul I had never come here. I would to heaven I had gone away at once as I first intended. I like that boy. I feel he has fine stuff in him, and now— Come, come, Harcourt. It's the fault of all soft-hearted fellows like yourself that their kindliness degenerates into selfishness, and they have such a regard for their own feelings that they never agree to anything that wounds them. Just remember that you and I have very small parts in this drama, and the best we can do is to fill them without giving ourselves the airs of chief characters. You're at your old game, Upton. You're always ready to wet yourself, providing you give another fellow a ducking. Only if he get a worse one, or take longer to dry after it, remarked Upton, laughing. Quite true, by Jove, chimed in the other. You take special care to come off best. And now you're going added he as Upton rose to withdraw, and I am certain I have not half comprehended what you want from me. You shall have it in writing, Harcourt. I'll send you a clear despatch the first spare moment I can command after I reach town. The boy will not be fit to move for some time to come. And so, good-bye. You don't know where they are going to send you? I cannot frame even a conjecture, sighed Upton languidly. I ought to be in the Brazils for a week or so about that slave question, and then the sooner I reach Constantinople the better. "'Shan't they want you at Paris?' asked Harcourt, who felt a kind of quiet vengeance in developing what he deemed the weak vanity of the other. "'Yes,' sighed he again, "'but I can't be everywhere.' And so saying he lounged away, while it would have taken a far more subtle listener than Harcourt to say whether he was mystifying the other or the dupe of his own self-esteem. End of chapter 17